We're continuing on today in our series and justice for all jubilee from Leviticus through Revelation, okay? But here is the topic we're talking about today. Slavery. We're talking about slavery throughout the Bible. Why am I trepidatious to talk about this topic? Let me rephrase this. I am so trepidatious to talk about this, so nervous to talk about this, that I completely forgot how I planned on introing this sermon and skipped right over a relatively important part. Let's dive back at it. Let's talk about something that's not quite as difficult. Thank you very much, Holly. It's not quite as difficult to talk about. We'll talk about something a little modern. Uh, I'll give us a little palate cleanser before we dive into the topic of slavery. Here's our palate cleanser. Are you ready for this? All right. Who here is around my age, right around 33? Right around 30, we'll say, right? (laughs) Right around my age, right? When you were growing up my age, here's a fun thing that you probably, uh, if you're younger than me, wouldn't have picked up on. Or if you're older than me, you're like, yeah, whatever. But whenever I went to high school, I had no access to basically any of the technology we consider today. I had computers at school. We had a computer at home for part of my high school career. But, like, I didn't carry around cell phones. I didn't uh, have a tablet. I didn't have uh, access to Wikipedia. Oh, Wikipedia, how I love you. I didn't have access to any of the modern conveniences we consider technology today. I didn't get a computer of my own until my first year of college. I didn't get internet access in my home, like my access to it, until like a year after that. So that's kind of fun, right? Could you imagine growing up now, if you're younger than me, with no access to the internet throughout high school? We were right on the cusp, right on the cusp of that technological change. Who here is currently holding a cell phone. Raise your hands, right? Yeah. Fun story. In 1995, 35 million cell phones were sold around the world, which sounds like a lot, but not a lot whenever you consider, you know, how many people there are, right? By 2013, there were more cell phones than people in the world currently in existence And you may say, why would there be more than there are people? Who needs more than one? But consider yourselves, Brenda's holding up two currently. Uh, How many people here have more than one cell phone sitting in a random desk drawer at home? Hi, guys. Right? So you're one person and you got two because you have the one you're using in an old one, right? By 2014, 91% of the adults in the world own a cell phone. Consider that transition or that change from no one having them about 20 years ago to 91% of the world owning one now. That's just ridiculous, the way that they have transformed our world. I used to love, and I still do love, books by Scott Adams, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And one of my favorite things they had was the encyclopedia he carried around. And the encyclopedia was just an electronic book about this big that said, don't panic on it. And it could open up to anything that you had any question on or any knowledge on. And that's what Wikipedia is now. I debated getting a Kindle and rooting it and putting Wikipedia on it and having don't panic inscribed on the outside of it just to carry around with me. We have that kind of technology. Thank you, the three nerds who are like, that's freaking awesome. I appreciate you getting me. All right? Huh? And always carry a towel. Always have a towel. (sighs) Technology has changed our world infinitely. To the point that we can have trouble forgetting what has happened in our recent past. And some of the stuff that we have to remember is that things like slavery, a much less modern occurrence, occurred very recently in our past. Within the U.S. and within the rest of the world, right? We like to consider slavery a done thing now, right? We tend to think slavery is over. Go with me. All right, go with me. All right. (laughs) We tend to consider slavery a done thing right now. And we tend to think about the fact that it ended what we think to be a long time ago, right? So in the U.S. especially, slavery was over what? Uh, It started from the time the actual colonies were colonized, and it continued onward all the way through until the beginning of World War II legally. And I know what you're thinking. World War II, that's the wrong war, Chris. It ended in the Civil War. And I think, oh, bless your heart. 
if you think slavery ended at World War, at, at the, the Civil War, do me a favor and research peonage, just P-E-O-N-A-G-E. Go ahead and just research it. Uh, that is the concept of debt slavery, meaning you could go into debt and be forced to work for someone to pay off that debt. And it very quickly morphed into uh, straight slavery because they would just basically arrest random people on the street for things like being on the street. And I mean literally walking down a road. Oh, you're walking here. We have a no walking here at 1217 ordinance on the books now. So we're going to go ahead and arrest you. The fine will be exorbitant, and we're going to sell your fine to a landowner. And you can work for them until you get your fine paid off. Oh, you have to pay them back for the food, for the land that you're using, for the... You know what? You've got like 40 years in because you're walking in the wrong place. Up until the beginning of the 20th century, so that's the 1900s, up until World War II, it's estimated that 40% of African-American males in the South were stuck in the system of peonage. It wasn't even started to change. It didn't even start changing until World War II, whenever FDR, following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, required federal prosecutors to start actually prosecuting cases of unlawful peonage because they didn't want there to be such a large group of people in the continental U.S. who had a reason to be mad at the government during World War II. And it didn't actually become nearly as eradicated as it is now until 66, whenever they put the next round of laws on the books. So within some of the people's lifetime here, that type of slavery was still in place in the U.S. We think of slavery as a long-ago thing. And we think of it as something that we as a culture have overcome. And that modernity has overcome. And because of the way that we look at slavery now, we sometimes have difficulty whenever we read back into the Bible and we see things wherein the Bible actually discusses the way slaves are to be treated, basically giving right for people to own slaves. And we dislike it and we hate it and we fight against it. And it's one of the reasons why people claim to hate Christianity at times, because it gave appropriation to slavery. It gave people the right to own slaves, right? Have you guys ever talked to someone who was struggling with the church or Christianity because of the fact that it was one of the things that was used to promote slavery? You ever run to people who have issue with that? I certainly have, and I've been one of them. So we have to dive into this topic because whenever we talk about Jubilee, it is intrinsically tied to the concept of owning people it's in there, guys. We're going to turn to Leviticus chapter 25. Oh, random, real quick. If you want to see Old Testament verses, if you hear people talking about slavery and want to know what the Old Testament teaches on it, here are some verses you can write down or some chapters of the Bible you can write down. These are the main chapters that discuss Hebrew slavery in the Levitical law and in the, uh, the, the the five books, the Pentateuch. So if you want to know about slavery, you can read these verses, okay? We're going to dive into Leviticus 25, 35 through 46, and we're going to touch on the other ones as we go through. But here's what Leviticus 25, 35 through 46 says. It says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. Dulos, by the way. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you inherit as, as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one another ruthlessly. Oh, back up. That's that. 
in the Jubilee Code. There are some sections that discuss the ownership of people. And one thing that we have to pull in is oftentimes Christians, uh, preachers, like to point out the fact that within, uh, within biblical times, there were no... Slavery then isn't what we think of slavery as now. People will say. People will say that wrongly. I have said that wrongly. Within Leviticus, within Leviticus 25, within the Jubilee Code, slavery is discussed, and there are two distinct groups of people who can be uh, enslaved by the way that we describe slavery today. There are the people of Israel who can become bond servants or uh, slaves uh, for debt, so debt slavers, uh, who have several different rights and, and, and things to their masters. Uh, for example, they are to be taken care of well. Uh, they are to be released on the year of Jubilee. They are not to be sold as property. Uh, they are not to be transferred around. And every uh, at least 50 years, they had their full freedom. Uh, in Exodus, we find out that every Sabbath year, the slaves are released. And so slavery actually was a seven-year at most thing. People could sell themselves into slavery for seven years and then could step out of it uh, because their debt would be paid off, if that makes sense. That's what Israel was. But there's another group of people that are also discussed, non-Israelite slaves, people who are from the lands of Canaan that are around Israel, people who are strangers or sojourners in the land and who choose to sell themselves into slavery. And these people are described as not being released on the Sabbath or Levitical year so they can become property in perpetuity, perpetually. And they can be passed down from generation to generation. Guys, the Old Testament allows for long-term slavery against one's will. It does. How do we deal with that as followers of Christ who believe this is the word of God and who also see that slavery is an injustice that should not occur? What do we do with that? Fun story. At one point, Jesus is being questioned by uh, the Pharisees. And they come to him and say, uh, Teacher, we have a question for you. When is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? Moses says we could do so as long as we give a certificate of divorce. Is it okay to divorce for whatever reason as long as we provide a certificate? Is that cool? Because they were trying to trip Jesus up because at the point that Jesus was going around, there were some more rules put around the concept of divorce than the actual Old Testament code had put into place. And so Jesus either could say that the Old Testament code was wrong, in which case he would be guilty of blasphemy, or he could hold it up and say it's cool for people to divorce whoever they want whenever, as long as they hand over a piece of paper. Divorce, by the way, super prevalent in this day and age. Uh, if you look back through Roman records of the times, there are two basic documents that we have a ton of, and those things are basically shopping lists and divorce certificates. That's what we have tons of copies of fun, right? <laughs> Jesus responds back and says, basically, let's look back at the creation order. And he points back to Adam and Eve, and he says that uh, when God created man, he created man and woman, and the two shall become one, and when God is joined, may no one separate, right? And then he says something very, very interesting. He says, don't you know that the law was given because of your hardened state? And therefore, even though the law gives right for one to have a certificate of divorce given, I tell you that righteousness is not doing that. Righteousness is not divorcing. You see, Jesus pointed out something interesting, that what the law gives allowance for, what the law does, is not define perfect goodness and perfect badness. He says that the law can allow something, divorce, that is outside of God's perfect will. Which is for two to never be separated. 
and that that was done because of the hardness of the people's hearts. Check this out. So if that's the case, and if God gave laws that were set up specifically to not be too hard for people to deal with because of their hardened state, doesn't that sound like that maybe that if these are the less harsh versions of the laws, that the people should have had a decent or easy time following them? As you read the Old Testament, how well did Israel do following the law? Were they super good at it, just like awesome and never got in trouble for anything and never broke that code whatsoever, or uh, the opposite? Israel messed up all the time. Basically, God says that there are laws that because of how hardened the people are, I will put in borders around things to limit their evilness while simultaneously recognizing that limit is not within God's perfection. Two things come to this, first of all. One being the fact that even if you or I could perfectly follow every letter of the Old Testament law, that does not automatically mean that you and I would be perfect in God's sight. We can't, by the way. We wouldn't even do that. But even if we could perfectly follow the letter of the law, we would still not be perfect as God is perfect. Because we can follow the law and still miss the intent of the law. This is why whenever Christ explained the law and things like the Sermon on the Mount, whenever he walked through and said, you have heard it said that you should not commit adultery, and I tell you, you shouldn't lust, that's exactly what's happening. Jesus is pointing out the fact that the law put gates on behavior, but did not tie into stopping sin. Because you could follow the law perfectly and never have an affair while still super sinning because you can be lusting after everyone around you. Make sense? The law was put in place to put gates on behaviors. Why do I think the Old Testament has rules and stipulations regarding slavery? And why do I think the Old Testament allows for slavery to occur? Because I believe the Old Testament was putting stipulations or bonds on a practice that the people of Israel were going to practice regardless of what the law said. If the law said, hey, you may not have any slaves whatsoever, what would the people of Israel probably done? Said, you know what, I'm going to have slaves anyway. And do it anyway. And would have treated their slaves probably far worse than their slaves could have been treated. Roman law, not Jewish law, but Roman law, said that the head of a household, the father of the family, this is up until right around the time of Jesus, whenever the Republican system was still in place. Roman law said that the head of the household had right to absolute life and death over his entire household. So his wife, his children, his servants, his concubines, his slaves, anyone within his household, he had absolute right of life or death over. Meaning if a father chose to kill his son, father was allowed to do so. And there was no law against it at that time. If a husband or father chose to kill the slaves in his house, and just, just kill them all, he was allowed to, right? Fun story, uh, Hebrew slavery, that was not allowed. So you know the very, very famous portion of Exodus whenever the writer uh, says, you've uh, a law, an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth, you shall pay back what is given to you uh, reciprocally. You should give them back what you received and nothing more. So if someone stabs you in the eye, you can take out their eye. Or if someone breaks out your tooth, you can take out their tooth, but you can't kill them in response. That was a law that was actually putting a gate on people's behavior. Because if someone, like, poked me in the side with a sword and made me upset, and I went and killed him and his whole family, that'd be a pretty bad response, right? Not an uncommon response for the time period. And God's law says you must pay back uh, injury with similar injury. And so if someone takes out your eye, you can take out theirs. You can't kill them. If someone takes out your tooth, you can take out theirs. You can't kill them. This law was putting a gate on people's behavior. Fun story, Jesus made that law more harsh. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. I tell you, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other as well. In that same section of Exodus, Exodus chapter 21, immediately following that section where it talks about eye for an eye, it tells the master that if a master puts out his slave's eye, the slave slave gains his freedom. If a master puts out his slave's tooth, the slave gets his freedom. 
Have you guys heard the beginning whenever uh, God, this is the very beginning, whenever Cain and Abel uh, get into a fight and Cain kills Abel? And then uh, Cain is cast out and Cain basically says, oh, woe is me. Everyone's going to kill me because people know that I've killed my brother. And then God says, I tell you, uh, Cain, if anyone harms Cain, he'll be avenged sevenfold. Like if anyone kills Cain, their whole family will be killed, basically is what God says. Don't kill Cain, right? Avenged means to repay someone for what's been done. To do back to that person what's been done. That's what avenging is. In the same chapter of Exodus, if a master beats his slave and his slave dies, what does the law say to do? It says the slave shall be avenged. If a master kills his slave, the master is to be killed as well. Does this mean this was an awesome, perfect system? Oh, good Lord, no. No, 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 no. These are limits on behavior that other cultures didn't have, generally. So everybody had slaves. There were much stricter rules on how Israelites could treat their slaves. They were not allowed to kill them. If they put out an eye or a tooth, they were to give them their freedom. They were not property that could be used and disposed of completely with no issue. They were people. That's one of the big differences. They still retain their personhood. Perfect system? No, that same section that says whenever you beat a slave, if they die, you shall be avenged. It says, but if you wait a day or two and they're still alive, eh. They are yours. It actually literally says they are your money. Gates on sinful behavior, not eradication of sin. Fun other things that are probably worth kicking out there. In Deuteronomy 15, it also talks through uh, the way that slavery is supposed to function within Israel. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 21, there's a really interesting verse that I think we should probably all know from our own history, which is literally that if a slave escapes from their master and runs to your household, you are not allowed to return that slave to their master. (laughs) Instead, you are to treat them as a guest in your house and as a member of your own household. You are to care for them as you would for any sojourner or foreigner within your land. And if you don't know anything about hospitality in the Bible, hospitality in the Old Testament is a huge thing. Meaning, basically, if a slave were to escape and run away and go to another Israelite, that Israelite was not supposed to return them to their master to put them back into slavery. Fun story from our own history, then. That's one that kind of destroys a bunch of the writings of people who are claiming that slavery as it happened in the U.S., was supported by the Bible because one of the big things they were, we actually started the Civil War for was because the South was unhappy with the fact that if slaves escaped and ran north the north wouldn't return them one of many reasons why they were upset, uh, and by many I mean many dealing with slavery so, if you guys want to talk about the start of the Civil War, please come talk to me. My actual main degree is military history. I have lots of good stuff to talk about on that, but I probably shouldn't tie a bunch of it into it now. Anywho, slaves that escaped were to be treated as you treat your brother or sister and not return to their master where they may be killed for their choice to escape. Slavery was an everyday occurrence for pretty much the entire world up until the modern era. Every culture was generally affected by it. There are like four that weren't that we know of. Anyone who moved past hunter-gatherer stage tended to step into slavery, any culture that did. And the reason why that's the case is because agriculture is what allows people to have enough food to be able to feed more people than you can take care of. Before that, you didn't take slaves from the people that you fought in war. You just killed everybody because you couldn't feed the mouths with your hunter-gatherer ways. (sighs) Slavery has been an ongoing occurrence from basically the start of civilization on through till modern times. scriptures put gates on it. The New Testament talks about slavery in multiple places. Jesus, whenever he came and walked amongst the world, 
oftentimes sat down with, talked to, or healed servants or slaves. He treated them like people. And he did the same things for them that he would do for people who are of good standing. How many times do you remember whenever someone would run up to Jesus and say, hey, my servant whom I love is hurt. And Jesus says, I'll heal him. Healed. Jesus treated slaves like people. Paul wrote household codes in the New Testament. A couple different places, Ephesians and Colossians. He touched on household codes. We're going to read both of the ones that deal with slavery real quick. This is Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9, part of a household code. He first talked about husbands and wives, then he talked about kids and parents, and now he's talking about slaves and masters. And he says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or he is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality in him. Know that there is no partiality in God between the master and the slaveholder. He values both. Next one, Colossians. This one's kind of fun. Remember that? Remember there is no partiality part? Remember that part real quick because we're going to get to something real quick. In Colossians 3.22, it says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing this is the same one. No, no, it's not. It's actually just so close. Sorry. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ. Before we go into the next section real quick, remember, he told masters, remember there is no partiality between father, between master and, and, and servant or slave in God, right? This next verse. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Whenever, so household codes are a common thing that occurred within this culture. Lots and lots of philosophers and teachers wrote household codes, speaking about how houses were to be set up and ordered properly for all good purpose and to bring about healthy, organized living is basically what they were shooting for, right? Paul's household codes are weird because Paul doesn't just talk to the person in power. Household codes generally told fathers how to be fathers, fathers how to be husbands, and fathers how to be masters, and that's it. You talk to the father, and you tell him how to treat everyone else under him. With the assumption that they'll just, the other people will just do whatever the head of the household wants, right? Paul, in both of his household codes, does something super weird, which was he doesn't just address the person who quote-unquote matters in their culture. He also addresses uh, the wives. He also addresses the children, and he also addresses the slaves. He speaks to slaves, giving them instruction as an apostle, recognizing the fact that they, as followers of Christ, are worthy of instruction and not mere objects. They are worthy of teaching. First and foremost, he gives them personhood in doing this, which is not something that most teachers of this era would have done. They wouldn't have bothered telling slaves what to do because slaves will do what the master says or be in super bad trouble. Instead, he teaches the slaves how they are to act. And he calls for them to serve their masters as if they're serving Christ himself. Yes, that sounds weird. But there's two things I want to point out. One is my favorite part of this entire thing. Whenever Paul, in the first book, Ephesians, tells masters, remember, hey, masters, there is no partiality. You serve a master as well, and you should treat your slaves fairly and justly, because if you don't, you will have to answer to your master in heaven, right? He tells that to masters. In the next one, Colossians, he tells that to the slaves. And imagine this. Imagine, imagine that you are a person in one of these positions of power, 
uh, having life and death authority over people underneath you. And imagine having a person who has authority over you write to the person whom you have authority over and saying, Hey, serve Christ and remember this. There is no partiality between you and your master, and that person will be dealt with according to their actions. This is Paul saying, Hey, slaves, if your masters are horrible people, God will treat them badly. (laughs) They will not be happy. And then this carries over into Philemon. If you have not read the book of Philemon, it's one that's very easy to step over or look past. I want to give you a small amount of context on what this book is. Paul is writing to a man named Philemon, who is a slaveholder and a church leader. And he is sending back to Philemon a man named Onesimus. Onesimus was a man who likely stole from his master's household and ran and fled and left his master's service. A capital crime in Roman times because the head of the household has absolute right over life and death over their slaves. Onesimus came to Rome, became a follower of Christ, met Paul, who was the person who led Philemon to Christ, became a friend and fellow gospel worker of Paul in Rome, to the point that he was eventually entrusted with carrying the words of Paul back to the church of Ephesus, very likely. He actually was one who carried the book of Ephesians back. We have part of the Bible because of this runaway slave. After carrying this book back to that church, he was carrying a second letter, which was the book of Philemon. This slave carried back to his old master a letter from Paul pleading that Philemon treat Onesimus well. At one point during this letter, Paul says to Philemon, You know exactly what I could command of you as your father in Christ, and that I could tell you exactly what you are required to do by God. But so that you can serve God out of a whole heart, I'm not going to command you. I'm going to let you make the decision to do so yourself. I want you to welcome back Philemon, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ and friend. Welcome back Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ and friend. Paul calls for this slave owner to accept back a runaway slave, a man who he by legal right could kill for his crime. He tells him to welcome him back as a brother and friend. And then he says, I, command, I could command you to do something. I could command you to do something, but I'm not going to command it. I'm going to let you make that decision by yourself. But take a rough guess in your brain of what it likely was that Paul was saying he could easily command him to do. His final request is that Onesimus would be freed to come back and serve with Paul again. To be a help for him. Paul is pointing out the fact that in the gospel, slavery doesn't make sense. That you once had a slave, but now you have a brother and friend whom you should treat well. And that Paul, in his apostolic authority, in his authority from God, could command for Philemon to release his slave, but he's going to allow Philemon to make the decision to do that on his own but that the weight of the gospel falls to it. This is what the gospel is pointing at. Fun story again. One more thing. When we think about Christianity in our context, especially worldwide, do we think of Christianity as the religion in the U.S. of the marginalized? Or as the religion of the uh, rich and in charge, in the U.S. especially. When you think of people who push hardcore for Christianity, for following the Bible, for whatever you want to say, does the image that pop in your brain, is it a rich white dude? Or is it a uh, poor... A Hispanic woman who doesn't speak English. What pops into your brain? 
See, in our culture, oftentimes we kind of equate Christianity with the group of people who are holding power. And we think of it as an oppressing thing, something used to oppress various people, right? We think of it this way. It's not. We think of it this way sometimes, though. In Rome, whenever Christianity was first being formed, it was ridiculed by the elite as a religion for stupid people because the main people who were following it were women, slaves, and the poor. Christianity was ridiculed as the religion that was grabbed upon by people who were out of power, who were not cared for, who were hurt and were oppressed. Because in this this religion, master and slave may still have their social standing or social order, but before their God, they are treated the same way. And the thrust of the gospel is pointing towards slavery ending. Male and female may have separate social standing or social order, but before their God, they have the same standing and the same requirements. They are called to serve him alone. Poor, rich, whatever. Why? Check this out. Philemon. Not Philemon. uh, Philippians. Chapter 2. Verses 11 through, or verses 5 through 8. In this section, we're reading about Jesus and what he did. And it says this, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That word servant is the word doulos. It means slave. Jesus, being perfect and all-powerful and the ultimate master of the world, took on the form of a slave and identified himself as a slave gave up his own self and humbled himself perfectly to the point of dying for those around him why did people who were in extreme circumstances cling to Jesus in the cross because on the cross we have a perfect master who identifies himself with not just the people in power in society but with the powerless in society Whenever John 13 is happening, whenever uh, the Last Supper is happening, Jesus takes off his outer robes, strips down basically to his undergarment, and kneels before his disciples' feet and washes his feet, washes his disciples' feet. And his disciples are appalled by this action. They do not want to see him do it. Peter especially is like, don't do this. Do you know why Peter's appalled that Jesus would do this? Because Jesus is their teacher and their master. He's the one that they're supposed to be following perfectly. And Jesus is doing the job that was left for the lowest servant of a household. (laughs) Whoever was the least honored in the house was supposed to do the job of washing feet. That usually fell on either the youngest slave or the youngest child if the house had no slaves. And Jesus did this himself. And then he tells his disciples that if you... What I have done to you, do to others. He called for his disciples to be servants of all. He took on these roles. He didn't have to, right? He could have forced us, the entire world, to serve him if he chose to. He could have crushed us under his feet if he wanted to. Instead, he chose to humbly serve. And a God who does that is a powerful image to people who spend their lives serving. Because he knows what they've gone through. And he will care for them and bless them. What does this matter for us today? Come on, guys, slavery ended, right? We don't have to deal with it now. And we know it was super bad, and so it's super weird that the Bible talks about it. Like, it doesn't matter to us because we don't have to deal with slavery, right? It doesn't touch on us anymore. 
fun story. Who are those people who own cell phones? You raise your hands for me again. Literally everyone is holding a cell phone. There's a very good chance you are holding an object that was in some way, shape, or form produced by slave labor. I'm not just talking about people who work in factories that have harsh conditions. The tin in your phones, the gold that's in your phones, the random elements like boron that are in your phones are produced by slave labor in mines in places like Central Africa and India. If you look at the Bible and say, man, it's stupid that the Bible talks about slavery at all because we don't deal with it without recognizing the fact that you are holding in your hands a product of slave labor, kind of hypocritical. Right? Now please note, Jesus himself probably wore things that were produced by slave labor. This does not mean you have to strip off all of your clothes, run to the woods, and live in a tent. Uh, Maybe not a tent, actually. Maybe some leaves and stuff that you put together because the tent also may have been produced by slave labor. You don't know. This is not saying you must give up everything around you. But you should be mindful. Very much so. Stupid thing. All those multiple phones we have sitting around in our desks and whatnot. Do me a favor. Go home find a recycling program and recycle them because the random elements that are in your phone, many of them can be recycled and reused to produce new cell phones. And if everyone does that, there will be less of a demand to pull more of those. There will still be demand. It will be very hard to remove demand completely. But that would be one little thing you could do to reduce demand slightly. Fun other thing. How often do you upgrade your phone? Are you an every two years person? every three years person, every five years, however often you drop it and you break it. Uh, If you can, see if you can make your cycle just one year longer. If literally everybody saved their phone for one more year, over a lifetime, how many less phones are you going to consume as a person? If you can get to the point where you don't need to upgrade at all, please do. If you can figure out a way to do that, please do. Cut down demand a little bit, right? We talk about stewardship a lot in city church, right? And one of the things that stewardship deals with is stewardship with money. And so oftentimes whenever we talk about stewardship with money, we talk about being good with our money and not spending too much and therefore trying to cut spending as much as humanly possible, right? We talk about cutting human spending a lot. We don't talk about it, but we consider it whenever we're talking about stewardship aspects a lot, right? Here's the fun thing. It's highly possible that if your entire thought on how stewardship of money happens means to buy the cheapest things possible to avoid paying extra money, that you might misunderstand stewardship slightly. Because stewardship can also mean buying things that will last longer, which often cost more. And stewardship also can mean being mindful of where the things you're buying are coming from. If you can buy a t-shirt that was produced for seven cents by a slave or a t-shirt that costs $15 to be produced in a factory, which one is the better choice when it comes to stewardship? Probably the one that's made ethically, right? Please note, I and literally everyone who is talking about this are very likely hypocritical on it to some extent. Please know, I used to wear nothing besides black jockey long t-shirts because they were the only ones that hid my belly. Now, as far as I know, jockey tries to keep their factories nice, but as far as I know, it only gets you so far because subcontractors of subcontractors of subcontractors, you don't know where your stuff's made. You can't. All you can do is take your best shot and try not to and pray for God to allow you to not do stupid things with it. Be mindful of where your stuff comes from. You want another one? Another thing you can do? One more thing you can do to probably uh, help overcome slavery a little bit? Anyone here ever looked at porn? Yeah? 
here ever looked at stuff that was given away or distributed freely, uh, not made by big studios or things of that nature, blah, blah, blah. Something like 80% of men admit to looking at porn in the past year and 60% of women. So just so you know, this probably deals with most of us in this room in some way, shape, or form. If you have a habit where you have looked at it once a week for your adult life, because most of the people in this room, the internet was around when they turned about 15, right? Say once a week, that's 52 times a year. For 10 years, it's 520 times. You know that there's a pretty decent chance that at least one of the things you saw in there was a person who was being held against their will and performing for camera because they're required to by their slave owner. We always talk about not looking at porn because of the way that it affects your heart and your spouse's heart and things of that nature, but it also contributes to the rise in human slavery around the world, human trafficking or sexual exploitation. If you can't stop for your own benefit or for the benefit of your spouse, stop for the benefit of the person who may be being forced to perform and doesn't want to be there and you're literally watching them be raped. Heavy one, right? Rough. Rough stuff. Gospel connection. We know this. We know that he who is master of the world made himself a slave on our behalf, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for our behalf. He chose to forego of his divine authority so that he could show and demonstrate love to you and me. To offer himself up not just for the elite, not just for the people that the world thinks have worth, or power, or privilege, or prestige, but for literally everybody. From the richest person in the world to the poorest person. From the person with the most agency to the person with the, with the least. He died for all of us. And if someday marriage is going to end because the world will be recreated, slavery will end. Because Jesus will end it. It has not happened yet, but it will when he returns. This is another one of the reasons why Paul shouts from the bottom of his heart, Anatha, Lord, return quickly. Come back. End the depravity of the world. He who perfectly followed the law and perfectly followed the intent behind each and every law and who never stepped outside of the will of God offered himself up for those of us who cannot because of our nature. And we can have a right relationship with our Lord and our God because of it. And because of that, we can choose who to serve. Jesus at one point says, no man can choose, can serve two masters. It's not possible. You can only serve one. Who are you going to serve? Peter, Paul, Timothy. Whenever they are writing the works that they've written, there's a fun word that they use to describe who they are to Christ. And the word they use is doulos. In most translations that we like, translated as servant. But whenever Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he actually is saying, Paul, a slave to Christ. And when Paul discusses why he is, he uses imagery from the Old Testament again, from Exodus. In Exodus, whenever a slave is being freed in the Sabbath year, 
whenever that seven-year period hits and they're being released so that they can actually uh, go back to their families and their households, there are some slaves who are released by their masters. And they say, you know, my master has been good. He has cared for me. It is better for me to be a part of his household than to be apart from it. And I would like to continue in his service. And that master would accept that person as an indentured servant for life. They would mark them with an awl. They would put their ear to a doorpost, stick a nail behind it, and shove a hammer through it. Ear piercing. And that slave would choose to serve their master whenever they had been freed. Paul uses that imagery. He says he was once a slave to sin. And he was set free from that bondage, that slavery. He was released by Christ, who is master over all things. And therefore, he has made himself a bondservant to Christ. He now serves Christ fully. This is what we are supposed to be as mature followers of Christ. In case you ever wondered what the tattoo on my hand is, it actually is the word doulos. It means servant or slave in Greek. In the Septuagint, it's the term used for foreign slaves in Leviticus. In the New Testament, it's the term that is used for Jesus whenever he calls, it says that he took on the form of a slave. And it's the term that Paul uses for himself whenever he calls himself a slave for Christ. It's there to remind me of who I was enslaved to and who I have given myself over to now. Are you willing to give yourself over to him too? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hate the fact that injustice such as slavery exists in this world and that we, by our consuming and our using, Lord, we contribute to it. Lord, I'm not wise enough to completely figure out how to overcome it or get past it. But Lord, if you can, enlighten us in the ways that we can care for those around us and protect those around us. Lord, give us victory over the sin in our lives. But Father, please come back soon. Destroy sin and death in this world. Overcome the injustices of this world by your power. Thank you for offering yourself up humbly on our behalf and taking on the form of a slave for us. And Lord, may we serve you because of it. We thank you, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen.